My name is Heidi and I love stories. Funny stories and sad stories and what on earth just happened stories. As it turns out, the Bible is full of them. And after two decades in Sunday school, plus a master's in English, I'm here to tell them to you. Get ready. This is Messy Scripture. The people of Judah, in particular the city of Jabesh Gilead, were happy to make David king. However, the commander of Saul's army, Abner, made Ishbosheth, one of Saul's sons, the king in Israel. And now there's a civil war. This war goes on for quite some time, and the house of Saul continuously gets weaker and weaker and weaker, and David's house and the nation of Judah get stronger and stronger until finally Abner, Saul's general, defects. Abner meets with David and basically summarizes everything that's happened up until this point, David's conflict with Saul and David's conflict with Ishbosheth, and then points out that he knows and everybody knows that David is eventually going to be king and that God has ordained it. And David is thrilled. David's thrilled that Abner has joined him and he sends Abner away in peace to let Abner assemble an army for David. Joab, who is David's general, comes up and is like, you just did what with whom? You let Abner go? Just go away? And David's like, no, it's chill. Abner joined us. And Joab is like, this kid is an idiot. So he summons Abner back secretly without David knowing about it. And Abner, who knows that David trusts him, gets a message from Joab and is like, cool. I guess David needs something. Abner meets with Joab and Joab murders him in cold blood as vengeance. See, in the early days of the war between Ishbosheth and David, there had been a big battle at a place called Gibeon. And during that battle, Abner had killed Joab's younger brother, Asahel. To be fair, Abner had told Asahel not to chase him anymore because he was going to kill him. And Asahel's like, no, I'm going to catch you. And so Abner ran him through with the butt of his spear and Asahel died. And that's why, uh, yeah, Joab was not pleased with Abner. So he summoned Abner back in secret and murders him. When David hears about this, he is furious because Abner had done nothing wrong. He had stood for what he believed in. He had been loyal to Saul. And when he saw that that was no longer viable and that God was not with Saul, he joined David. End of story in David's mind. In fact, he goes so far as to curse Joab's family and gives Abner a state funeral. He won't eat. And the people are pleased with how David is treating Abner in his death. Ishbosheth is now in serious trouble, and as it turns out, he gets murdered by his own followers. They behead him and bring the head to King David. And David's like, did you guys not pay attention when someone tried the same crap with King Saul? When people said that they'd killed King Saul, out of pity, I killed them right on the spot. You're bringing Ishbosheth's head and you murdered him. You think I'm going to be okay with this? And David executes the people who had murdered Ishbosheth right there. With the death of Ishbosheth, David is anointed the king of Israel and he takes the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is a city on a hill. The fact that he took it at all is pretty impressive, and Jerusalem became David's new capital. Now, in case you were wondering whether David's entire kingship was not anointed by God, here's the magic number of David's ruling. He was crowned king at the age of 30, he reigned in Judah for seven years, and he reigned in Jerusalem over Israel and Judah for 33 years, i.e. David was king of Israel for 40 years. You know, like 40 years in the wilderness and 40 other stuff that happens all the time in the Bible. 40 years, big deal. So David's king of Israel. He defeats the Philistines and he does something that Israel has been wanting to have happen. He brings the ark home. Remember, the ark had been kept at someone's house, basically, for quite some time. 
because they were afraid of it. You know, it got captured by the Philistines, the Israelites got it back, but it like never had really gotten home, per se. Well, David is bringing the Ark to Jerusalem, the new capital of Israel. However, they didn't actually carry the Ark right. You're supposed to use the poles that come with it, put the poles through some rings that are attached to the Ark, and carry it on the shoulders of four priests. They didn't really read up on how you're supposed to carry the Ark. They put it on a new cart, already incorrect, and when one of the oxen that was carrying the Ark via the cart stumbled, a man named Uzzah reached out to try to catch the Ark so that it wouldn't fall. He immediately died, was just struck dead, because you're not supposed to touch the Ark. Ugh, it's in the rules. That kind of freaked David out, so he was like, I don't think I want the Ark at Jerusalem anymore. So he left it at the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, who was pretty close to where Uzzah had died, and word came back to David three months later that the guy had been, like, super blessed. So David decides that, okay, we can bring the Ark to Jerusalem. God is clearly with us. It was just, like, bad etiquette that killed this guy. Oopsie. <laughs> well, we can bring the Ark home. The Ark going into Israel is what you might call a BFD, big friggin' deal. And there's a parade in the entire city. Like, the Ark is being carried up, and King David has lost his chill entirely. He is singing and dancing and shouting before God and before everyone, just like a lunatic almost. In fact, he's exposing himself. Like, he's dancing so hard his panties are showing. And his wife Michal, the daughter of Saul, can see him through an open window and is just like, ugh. It says that she despised him in her heart, which is a lot bigger than just being irritated with him like she kind of hates him in the way that he's disgracing himself in her eyes and she confronts him about it she's like what kind of king are you that you exposed yourself in front of all the servants and in front of all the servant girls you looked like an idiot out there and David's like I was dancing for God what are you complaining about what's wrong with you I came here to bless you but just because of that you're never having babies and while David and Michal did get it on Several more times, Michal was infertile for the rest of her life. There was peace in the land of Israel. David built himself a beautiful palace made of cedar wood. But the Ark of God was still being housed in a tent, in Jerusalem, but in a tent. So David asked the prophet Nathan whether or not it was okay with God that he build God a temple. Nathan's like, absolutely. Then later that night, God is like, hey, Nathan, uh, not your call, buddy. David's not the man to build the temple. I have a plan for that. Also, who told you I needed a temple? I've been happy in the tent the whole time. I told them to build a tent in the desert, and I have not yet commanded a temple. Go talk to David. So Nathan has to kind of drag his feet and be like, so David, I kind of jumped the gun on saying that God was okay with it. That was my opinion. Here's the thing. God wants his temple to be built by a man of peace, and like it or not, you are a man of war. So you have permission to assemble all of the materials for the house of God. However, it will be your son who actually gets to build the temple. However, God wasn't mad at David when he said that. He just had a plan. He was establishing David's house forever. In other words, there would always be a king in David's line. It would never end. God was pledging himself to be David's father, essentially. And later we'll find out that David gets to, in one way, be God's indirect father, as he is a direct ancestor of Mary, Jesus' biological mother, and Joseph, Jesus' stepfather. King David is overwhelmed with gratitude and also pledges his loyalty to God. He's what the Bible calls a man after God's own heart, which means that David's priorities lined up with God's, 
and they also were deeply and passionately in love with each other. If that language sounds weird or like kind of strange to you, it's hard to avoid marital imagery in the Bible. We don't talk about it as much on this podcast, you know, because it's a storytelling podcast. Biblical poetry is fantastic, but that's not necessarily what we're here for. And in any case, David was a worshiper. He worshiped God loyally. And God loves that. Like, super loved David. And so the two of them made a covenant. On top of the covenant that God already had with the nation of Israel and all of his people. David subdued all of his enemies, and he was able to have rest. And once he had done that, he asked if there was anyone left in Saul's line, like any member of Saul's family that was still alive, because he wanted to take care of them. Not kill them, take care of them, like allow them to be a member of his family. Keep in mind, while he had been at war with Ishbosheth, who'd been crowned king of Israel, he hadn't actually, A, started that war, and B, uh, Saul had chased him all over the desert, and every time he ran into him, he was like, Saul, what are you doing? I don't want to kill you. I'm not going to do anything. And Jonathan had pledged his loyalty to David's kingship, so David had good reason to want to care for the members of Saul's family. As it turns out, there actually was one living member, a son of Jonathan, David's best friend, who had been crippled in his feet when he was dropped by a nurse as a young child. His name was Mephibosheth. Yes, I practiced saying that before I recorded this episode. And Mephibosheth was summoned before King David, and he was terrified because it's David who took his father's throne. Hooray! This is scary. But David told him not to be afraid. He had not summoned him here to kill him. He wanted to give Mephibosheth a seat at David's own table, that's right, Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, who was himself the son of Saul, David's greatest political enemy, was a welcome son in David's household, essentially a prince of Israel for the rest of his life. Mephibosheth is like, uh, I'm a dog. Like, I'm a dead dog. Why are you, the king, treating me like this? And David's like, I loved your father, and I promised your grandfather and your father that I would care for any members of their family that were left forever. So, yeah, no, we're, we're family now, buddy. <laughs> and he called Ziba, who was Saul's last living servant, or in charge of basically like a butler, like a family manager. He called the family Alfred, if you're familiar with Batman, and told him that everything that belonged to Saul, his own personal property, now belonged to Mephibosheth. None of it was captured by David and kept by David. All of it was returned to Saul's family. Mephibosheth is now a prince of Israel. Believe it or not, the Ammonites decided to attack King David, and they allied with the Syrians, and David took them to town. The Ammonites were like, hey, if something happens to us, we'll, you know, you can defend us, and if, if you're in trouble, we'll come to your aid. And David just kills them, slaughters them both in war. And so the Ammonites and the Syrians are like, never mind. The way that David accomplished so many of his military accomplishments was not just because David was a great warrior and God was with him, although both of those things are absolutely true. The other reason is that he had an elite fighting force called David's Mighty Men, or that's what we call them now. But this elite fighting force was incredible. They killed Dozens of people, each of them on their own. There was a time where David was trapped behind an entire army and was like, I want to drink from the well of my hometown. I want to drink from Bethlehem. And two of his men fought the way through 
two armies came back with a cup full of water and David poured it on the ground as a drink offering to God as like a symbol of their sacrifice. Like these guys are intense. By the way, if you want to read more about David's mighty men, there's a lot of really cool micro stories, if you will, about them in First Chronicles. Their accomplishments are pretty impressive, but from a storytelling perspective, there's not really many stories besides the well and water one, which I just told you. So if you're interested in some great, gory, manly history, read First Chronicles. It's great. Anyway, David's fighting men were one of the biggest reasons that he was able to conquer so many different people groups and also to make sure that there was peace in Israel, to reestablish Israel's borders and to make it secure. However, David fell into a serious trap. He began to rely on his fighting men. And one year, David sent out his general, Joab, and his army to fight the Ammonites, but he did not go with them. He stayed in Jerusalem. This is the time of year when kings go to war, and where is the king of Israel? He's at home in his palace. One afternoon, David is walking on the roof of his palace when he sees a woman bathing. It's unclear from the translations whether it's he sees her through her own window or on her roof, but in either way, she was bathing somewhere privately, and she was carrying out the ceremonial commands from God for cleanliness after a woman's menstrual cycle. Her name was Bathsheba, and she was married to a man named Uriah, who was a Hittite, and also one of David's mighty men. So David might have known who she was? but he certainly knew she didn't belong to him. And yet, she's real pretty. So King David summons Bathsheba to the palace. At this time, there was no way to say no to the king. She knew that. And it's quite possible, in fact, that Bathsheba thought that David had news about her husband, you know, her husband who was fighting his war. King David made the greatest mistake of his life. He used his power and leveraged it against Bathsheba and took her to bed. The word we would use for that now is rape, because there is no way for a married woman to really consent to a king's command to have sex with him. It's a command from the king. After Bathsheba returns home, she sends word to David. She's gotten pregnant. David's not her husband, and her husband is a member of David's inner circle, so this is a real problem. David attempts to make things go away by summoning Uriah back from the war. And he brings Uriah to his palace and gets him a little tipsy and is like, why don't you go home and wash your feet, which is definitely a euphemism for something else. Remember back when Moses had his foot touched by his son's foreskin? Yeah. And Uriah's like, no, 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 why would I do that? My men are out in the, f- out in the war. It's a little bit of an underhanded dig. The implication is that Uriah is well aware of what David has done. And he's kind of trying to point out to David, like, I would never sleep with my wife when my men are in danger. Would you? This happens twice, and Uriah absolutely refuses to go home. David gets him trashed to try to get Uriah to go home and have sex with his wife. And Uriah passes out in the barn. Like, he is unwilling to go home at all and even make it look like there's the possibility that this child is his We're not 100% sure from the text that Uriah knows that Bathsheba is pregnant. However, his adamancy in refusing to go home at all, even when ordered by the king, tells me that he's got a glimmer of something going on. David needs this problem, i.e. one of his closest and most trusted fighting men, to go away. So he gives orders, sealed, carried by Uriah's own hand to Joab, 
that when they fight the Ammonites next, to send Uriah where the fighting is fiercest and to pull everyone else back. Basically, David is conspiring to murder Bathsheba's husband Uriah, and it works. The men pull back, and Uriah is killed next to the wall of the city that they are sieging. And David is able to find this out through one of his codes that this has happened. Bathsheba goes into mourning, but when the time of mourning is over, David calls her back to the palace. And the word is sent for, not asks her if she wants to, brings her. It's not the word used with, you know, Isaac and Rebecca that he's comforted or he comforts her. No, David summons Bathsheba back to the palace and marries her and adds her son to the list of princes. But God is not happy with what David has done. David, God's beloved, his anointed, has fallen into a serious cavern of sin. He has assaulted or coerced or at the very, very best taken what wasn't his and murdered a friend over it. In the next episode of Messy Scripture, the fallout from David's choice against Bathsheba and Uriah will wreck the nation of Israel for decades to come. <laughs>